Hi, this is Jan Miyazaki, the host of the Wednesday 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you for tuning into WORT. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a donation at wortfm.org slash donate. And a half, and joining me is Felicia Cornblu, professor of history at the University of Vermont. She also has an appointment in gender, sexuality, and women's studies there, and is an affiliated faculty member in Jewish studies at the University of Vermont. She is the author of Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform and Feminist Perspective uh, with um, Gwendolyn Mink, and also the book The Battle for Welfare Rights. Politics and Poverty in Modern America. And the author of the um, her latest book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey for Reproductive Rights, um, from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice, um, which chronicles um, the campaigning um, ag- against sterilization abuse, and that fights side by side with the one um, for abortion rights. Um, it's just great to have and to welcome Felicia Cornblue this morning. Um, thank you for joining me. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, hey, Felicia, you know, I have to ask you, um, because I was really moved by, you know, the origins of this book and what you um, didn't know about your mother until after her death, I thought that was so important um, to really know our mothers as as people. So can you talk about the origins of this book? Yeah, and thank you for underlining that. Um, So this is a book about reproductive rights and reproductive justice, and of course these are front and center political issues for for us this year. Um, But for me, it's also a story about, um, about my mother, and I think it's a good reminder that we all you know, need to hear those stories from the people in our lives when we still can. Um, so my mom um, wrote, she actually was the original drafter of the law that decriminalized, or we could say legalized, abortion in the state of New York. Um, and that was important, not just in New York, but it, but it sparked a national campaign of people demanding a repeal of the old criminal abortion laws that existed before Roe versus Wade. And I argue, and I think there's really good evidence for this, that my mom's campaign and the campaigns that it helped to spark all over the country laid the foundation for Roe versus Wade, which was a national solution to the problem that they were identifying. So I don't know why my mother never talked about this with me. It was, if anything, it was my father who used to say sometimes, you know, the law that legalized abortion in New York, that was written in our living room. (laughs) <laughs> but um, but he never said anything more than that. And it was only after I lost my mom and some family members started talking about this that I started doing the research. And I actually found some traces of my mother's work in the archives, in the official archives, so that I knew for sure that she was the one. She wrote the law as part of a, a group, um, an early chapter of the National Organization for Women. She lobbied for it. She was the person who persuaded one of the key legislators to go out on a limb and support it. And, um, you know, and she was very modest about it. She didn't take a lot of credit, but you could say that she was one of the people who helped create the momentum for Roe versus Wade and to decriminalize abortion in America. You know, um, Felicia, and and, um, I really recommend this book. I have to still think about it a lot and, um, and think it's a, 
a book club read? Because I, I would ask the readers that I would be reading this book with, what does the origin story have to do with the rest of the story? Because I think that it is really important. And I'd like to hear what people think about um, what we don't know about our mothers and our mother's contributions and something as big as the right to have children or the right not to have children. Um, I think that story just is throughout um, is relevant throughout the whole book. But, you know, your book chronicles, you say, two social movements. Um, can you talk about those, um, identify those? Yeah, so my mother was a player in the movement to decriminalize, as they used to call it in the 60s and 70s, to decriminalize abortion. In other words, to get rid of the laws that were on the books in those days that made it a crime to to get or seek an abortion or to provide an abortion. Um, and the other amazing thing that I started to realize and to really learn about after um, after I started working on this project is that our next door neighbor, um, who unfortunately also is gone, a woman named Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias, um, she lived across the hall from us for about a decade in the 1980s, and she was one of the founding members and probably the most important leader in the movement against sterilization abuse which was really rampant, especially in communities of color in the 1960s and 1970s. It was happening to black women in the South. It was happening to women on reservation. And it was happening to Puerto Rican women. And Mm -hmm. Helen was Puerto Rican. So she knew this story. Right. So I write about the successful push to decriminalize abortion and the push toward Roe versus Wade. And then after Roe, all the people who identified that Roe was not enough right, and that they needed to do more, especially for low-income women and women of color. So they joined this anti-sterilization movement, and they started to create a bigger reproductive rights movement that would say, look, everybody needs the full range of reproductive choices, certainly abortion care, and certainly contraception, but also to be free to choose to have kids, you know, and to not be pushed into something like a sterilization procedure if that's not really appropriate. So, so how... How did that work? I, I, you know, you write about how a woman going in, trying to access a safe abortion, um, having to sign a consent form, the other side having to consent to a sterilization. That I think that just sums up the issue. Yeah, what what that made me realize is that this is really an issue of of control and power and dignity that people have over their own lives and their own healthcare choices. And in the days when, well, I guess we're back there now, right? Um, when, when it's up to the government or it's up to a doctor or a hospital committee or something like that to decide whether or not you are, you know, in the right kinds of medical circumstances that you deserve to have an abortion procedure, right? Then they can push you into doing all kinds of other things as well, right? They could, they could say, and they used to do this pretty commonly, as far as I can tell, in the 60s um, and early 70s, you know, okay, we'll let you have your, you know, your abortion procedure, but as a condition of that, we also encourage you to have a sterilization procedure because we think, you know, you're not the kind of person who should be raising kids, right? That used to happen pretty commonly. Um, and so that was one way in which these two issues were, were tied together. And then after Roe versus Wade, you know, it's still true that people who, who use Medicaid, you know, for their health insurance, people who were low income, would still be pressured 
even though abortion was legal at that point, right, they would still be pressured and the doctor would say, um, or some government official, social worker, or somebody would say, um, if you if you have another kid, then you're going to lose your welfare benefits, right? Or if you come back here to the hospital for another abortion procedure, like we don't like that, and uh, we're gonna um, we're gonna deny you medical care. Now they weren't really legally they weren't really allowed to deny anybody medical care, but they could threaten and coerce and mislead. And that happened pretty commonly. Um, and so we see, again, that when there are conditions put on people's freedom of choice and people's you know, fear of action about their own health care choices, then we can get into these situations of coercion where people are, are doing things that are not really right for them and people are denied the opportunity to make genuine choices about their parenting and whether or not they're going to have kids. So say more then about this intersection, the right to end a pregnancy, the right to bear and raise children. Um, had they intersected earlier, um, yeah, what well, would that have looked you could like? Say, so this is something that, that I think um, some of us who are in the, in the movement, and I, I count myself in that because I, I serve on a Planned Parenthood board and I've been an activist on these issues for a long time, and I think it's something that, that a lot of us on the movement have really had to learn recently, which, which is that actually, you know, these are issues that have always been with us in America. You, you know, you could go back to the history of enslavement, for example, and, you know, look at the way that enslaved women's bodies were, you know, were used as part of the, in service of that system, right? And people weren't able to control their own kids and their own families cause, because they were in that system. And you could look at the system of um, boarding schools, you know, for for families that were being raised on uh, Native American uh, reservations, right? Fam- tribal families, and uh, and that's an instance where people were losing control over their kids and the right to to raise the families that they wanted to raise. And we can think about all of that as issues of reproductive justice, right? And all of those legacies of of inequality and interference with people's families um, are things that I think we need to include when we think about a reproductive rights or reproductive justice agenda today. Um, and so it goes back very, very far. It goes back to 1619, right? It goes back to the earliest days, uh, even before the United States was the United States, that people have been trying to navigate with systems of power in order to, to, to have the kids they want to have, to not have the kids that they don't want to have, to raise the families, you know, that they have born, the kids they have born. Um, and it's always been, it's always been a struggle. You know, say more, more about the, the purpose of, of the book. You, you um, I, I think it's really important. Can you talk about why you wrote this? Well, I, I wrote the book in part to, to, to make this argument to, for, so that people would understand, first of all, that it's possible to win, right? The, both, in both of the movements that I'm writing about, the movement to decriminalize abortion and the movement to control sterilization abuse, right? In both of those movements, people won astounding victories. Um, they, won, they won more than they ever thought they were going to win, and they won faster, than they ever thought they were going to win. So I think that's 
that's a message that we really need today, right? Those of us who care about reproductive rights, we really need to know that it's possible to win. Um, and, um, and even that sometimes it's, it really is darkest before the dawn. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, I think we all need to understand that over several generations, um, certainly going back to the 60s and 70s, there's been a really active conversation about how abortion rights and these other rights of reproductive justice or reproductive freedom, how they all fit together. And, um, and I think it's time for us to understand that we need a really big agenda, that if people are really going to have reproductive freedom in this country, that, you know, that we need to definitely make sure that abortion is safe and legal and accessible. But we also need to think about all of the different things that families need and that parents need if they're going to be able to raise their kids, you know, with a level of security and dignity. You know, you, um, I read an article you wrote back in November in Time, and you're, you know, you talk about the, the success in um, Ohio, for instance. Um, but you also say that um, state by state, a state by state approach um, is not sustainable and that we need federal, restored federal protection. Can you talk about that and how your book informs that conclusion? Yeah, I, I don't want to rain on people's parade, and, and, I, and, um, and I, I hope it wouldn't sound like that. You know, what they did in Ohio and in Kansas and some other states um, in terms of securing and even constitutionalizing reproductive rights, it's really astounding, right? And it's huge evidence that um, that the majority of people in this country really want reproductive rights to be secure and they want people to be able to make their their own choices right so that's the first thing um, and I, I just want to add to that that you know ultimately we do need to go back to a federal solution and that's what the people I write about learned as well. You know, my mom was working in the state of New York, and it was great that they won a, a big victory in the state of New York, but that victory was very frail, and um, and it could have been repealed at any time, right? And so what Roe v. Wade did was it established a national baseline, um, which was essential so that even in a liberal state, a relatively liberal state like New York, they couldn't repeal reproductive rights, and so that the rest of the country would be on kind of an equal footing with the people in New York. Um, and I think we definitely need that today. Um, we're probably not going to get a lot of love from the United States Supreme Court. I wouldn't expect that in the near-term future, but there is congressional legislation called the Women's Health Protection Act, which has been kicking around in Congress for over a decade. And I think, you know, if we have robust majorities um, in favor of reproductive rights in Congress, we could pass the Women's Health Protection Act. And if there was a pro, pro-choice or pro-reproductive um, rights president, they would sign that. And that would make a huge, huge difference. Thank you. I'm speaking with uh, Felicia Korn Bluth, the author of A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey for Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. I, I think this is a must read. I think if you have a book club, this is a book club read. I think it's a book 
that um, should have discussion questions, but we can f um, formulate our own. Um, hey, um, Professor Cornblue, it's just great to have you on, um, uh, Professor of History at the University of Vermont, um, also with Women um, and Gender Studies there and Jewish um, Studies. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. 